Nation, Rob McGregor, welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thanks for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. And Trish McGregor. And our tech magician, John Posey, is along with us. The Mystical Underground is a place where the weird and wonderful flourish, where ideas that are contrary to mainstream materialistic science are explored, and the mundane, everyday world takes a back seat. You can go to our website, Phenomena 111, to find out more about our nonfiction books, including the most recent one, Phenomena harnessing your psychic abilities and uh, you can go to you can visit blog.synchrosecrets.com where we make regular posts in our blog today our guest is author and past life therapist carol bowman carol is an internationally known author lecturer past life regression therapist and pioneer in uh, reincarnation studies her two books Children's Past Lives, Bantam 1997, and Return from Heaven, published by HarperCollins in 2001, are now classics in the reincarnation field and have been published and read around the world in 22 foreign editions. She has appeared frequently on TV and on the radio, including Oprah, ABC Primetime, Good Morning America, Unsolved Mysteries, The Art Bell Show, and in several documentaries on A&E and Discovery. Carol has been a past life therapist for adults and has been doing research on children's uh, spontaneous past life memories for more than 30 years. I first met Carol at a Borders bookstore in 1998, I think it was, when I was browsing in the New Age self-help section. Her book, Children's Past Lives, How Past Life Memories Affect Your Child, literally fell at my feet. I devoured the book in a couple of days and emailed her about how much I had enjoyed it. I mean, up to this point, there was nothing like Carol's book. We met in 1999, 21 years ago, when Rob and I and our daughter were visiting friends in upstate New York and drove to Philly to meet Carol and her husband, Steve. At the time, Carol was working on a second book, Return from Heaven, Beloved Relatives Reincarnated Within the Same Family, and she needed an agent. I referred her to our agent, Alice Zuckerman, and he took her on as a client. Today, Carol is a full-time past-life therapist <clears throat> whose practice focuses on the healing of phobias and fears brought in from past lives. Her own journey began when her son Chase was just five and the family was living in Asheville, North Carolina. It was July 24th, 1988, and every year Carol and Steve hosted a big July 4th party at their house, which was a short walk to the best spot in all of Asheville to watch the booming firecrackers. But I think Carol should tell us what happened at that July 4th celebration. Welcome to the podcast. Carol, take it away, girl. Thank you. And I have to say that uh, I've been friends with Trish and Rob ever since. It's been a wonderful <laughs> friendship. And she's supported me in my work, in my writing, and I really appreciate it. So back to the story. Yeah. <laughs> so Tell us the story. Here we are. <laughs> well, set the stage. Um, we hosted a big party on the 4th of July in 1988, and Chase was five at the time, and my daughter was eight. And um, 
we had a lot of kids running around and we made our way down to the fireworks set as it was getting dark. And the fireworks were held on the municipal golf course, which were these kind of hilly, grassy areas. And when we approached, there were people lying all over the ground and people running around. It was a little chaotic. And as soon as the big booming sounds began, my son Chase became absolutely hysterical. He had never done anything like that before, and I couldn't calm him down, so I took him home, and I remember rocking him in the rocking chair just to settle him down. And I thought, well, that was really a weird <laughs> experience, and I, you know, but as a mother, you write things like that off. You know, he was five years old. He had been very excited about having everyone over and they probably ate too much sugar. So I (laughs) wrote it off as just overstimulation. About a month later or a few weeks later, we were visiting an indoor swimming pool, municipal pool in Asheville. It was the first time we'd been there. And when people, it was an enclosed space. When people jumped on the diving board. It made this big, booming, reverberating sound. And again, Chase became hysterical. Mm. I pulled him out of the building and I said, what's wrong? And he said, the noises scare me. And I was trying, at that point, I was trying to figure out what in his short life had happened that might cause him to have that hysterical reaction, which he had never had before. This was it. Had he been to that pool before? No, that was the first visit to Uh the pool. But he had been to fireworks before, and he never right. had that reaction. So, you know, I started wondering. I was a stay-at-home mother, you know, full-time mom. And, you know, I knew he, what he had been exposed to in his short life, and I, I couldn't figure it out. Well, as fate would have it, um, a hypnotherapist was visiting us from Florida, Norman Ng, and I had worked with him a year before doing a past life regression, which helped cure a chronic lung problem that I had. And Chase was due to start uh, kindergarten at the Rainbow Mountain School in Asheville. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, maybe Norman can give him some post-hypnotic suggestion. So the next time he was exposed to those booming sounds, he wouldn't freak out and (laughs) they would have to call us from school. Um, And Norman was a very skilled past life therapist with adults. He worked with some children doing hypnotherapy. And um, I told him about Chase's phobia and he said, well, let's, let's try a little experiment. And Chase agreed that he would like to do that because he didn't like that feeling at all Uh around the loud noises. So Norman said to Chase, close your eyes and sit on your mom's lap and tell me what you see when you hear the loud sounds that frighten you. And I immediately, I saw Chase's eyelids fluttering as if he were seeing something. And he said, I'm a soldier. I'm crouching behind a rock. I have a long gun with a sword at the end. There's smoke everywhere. I don't even know what I'm shooting at. And at this point, it's like, wait a minute, what is going on here? And Norman kept going. He was not put off by this at all. And he kept saying, well, what's happening? And he said, I I don't want to be there shooting other people. And he said, all of a sudden, he's hit on his wrist, and he grabbed his wrist, and he said, um, I, I'm injured, I, he, I'm hurt, They take, I'm shot in the wrist, they take me out, they take me to this place, it's, um, uh, I'm on a hard wooden bench, and it's 
kind of a, a tent with covering on top and big poles, and they they bandage my wrist and they make me go back into battle. I don't want to go. I don't want to shoot other people. I don't want to hmm. kill anyone. And um, at this now, point, did, did you know at that point that he was a black soldier? Did he say that? No, I didn't know what was going on at all. Uh-huh. I was in shock. I was going, "What? <laughs> you know, where's this coming from?" God. No, I had no idea. But Norman kind of sensed he he was just following Chase and asking uh-huh. open-ended questions and. Um, he said that, you know, they bandaged my wrist. I have to go back to battle. I don't want to be there. And at that point, Norman kind of picked up on the fact that this could be a past life memory because it didn't <laughs> jive with anything in his present life. And he t- he described it as someone in battle would have described it, not as uh-huh. a five-year-old who had not been exposed to any war movies or, you know, anything beyond Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. Uh, Carol, did uh, Norman, had he done past life regressions up to that point? Oh, yeah, yeah. he was very skilled, yes. And he had regressed me and a number of my friends at that point. So um, he said to Chase, he was picking up on Chase's discomfort, and he said, he explained to him in very simple language, um, sometimes we play different roles in different, we have different lifetimes, we play different roles. Sometimes we have to be soldiers, and as soldiers we have to kill people or we have to be killed, but there's no blame in it. And I, I'm thinking, wow, what, you know, is Chase going to get this? And he, I could feel his body. He was sitting on my lap, and I could feel his body relaxing. And he said, well, they make me go back into ba- battle, and I miss my wife and family. Wow. And this was the moment when I'm going, oh, my, you know, this this is something totally different. You know, I had no idea children could remember previous lives. But when he mentioned his wife and children that was the moment mm. you know i've got the the hair raising on my arms yeah. and my neck and i thought okay this is this is amazing i don't know what's happening but norman was very confident and he led chase and chase said well i'm going back to battle there's um there are chickens on the road it's dusty there are chickens on the road i see a, a cannon pulled on a big wagon with big wheels pulled by horses they make hmm. me go behind the can, and I don't want to do it. And then he kind of jumped off my lap, and Chase ran off to play with his Legos. And my daughter, Sarah, who was three years older than Chase, was sitting at the table with us. This happened around the kitchen table. She was watching this, observing this. And she said, Mom, that place where Chase was shot on his wrist, that's where he has his eczema. And Chase had had a persistent... A chronic excellence since he was nine, about nine months old on that spot on his wrist, which mm. had not responded to any medical treatment. And we tried food elimination, uh, antibiotic salves, homeopathy, all mm-hmm. kinds of things. And it, the, the rash was so, the eczema was so persistent that I had to bandage Jeez. his wrist at night um, so he wouldn't bloody the sheets. Mm. And, um, the upshot of all this was that after that, you know, 15, 20 minute uh, <laughs> recollection by Chase, his chronic eczema went away within a few wow. days. That's incredible. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. That you, it's fascinating that you wrapped it up just like 
exactly. Uh, that had happened to him in the past life. Wow. Exactly. When he was in this, what he described was a, f- a field hospital. Wow. I didn't know that at the time, but you know, he described <clears throat> kind of tent-like structure. Mm-hmm. Yes, he. I had bandaged the same wrist every night as they had bandaged hmm. his injury in the field hospital, and. Um, not only did his eczema go away, uh, but soon after that, he asked for his first drum kit and started making all huh. the booming sounds all the time. And he is a drummer, <laughs> kind of a sideline at this point. Um, so that was really what started me on my research of children's past life memories. And the fact because, that his eczema healed is what... Mm-hmm triggered the healing for you? I mean, the healing aspect of what you do. Yes, because I thought, what are the implications for other children who had phobias that, that parents couldn't explain? And not only did it cure the, the phobia of loud booming sounds, but it was that, that chronic problem that had uh-huh. been resolved. And, you know, that kind of blew my mind. Yeah, good reason. So that, did did yeah. he ever give you a name of who he was? No, but um, when we did the Oprah show in 1994, um, she hired a Civil War historian. Wow. Well, yeah, he, there's more to this story. I'll back up a little bit. Um, He hadn't talked about the memory um, after that one session with Norman, and we were moving to Pennsylvania at that point from North Carolina, so we were really busy. We didn't talk about it, but... About, uh, I don't know, nine, ten months later, we were sitting eating breakfast alone together, and he was eating his cereal, and he said, Mom, remember when I told you I was a soldier? And well, yeah, that, yeah, I perked right up. And I said, yes. <clears throat> and he said, well, I talk differently. And I said, well, how do you hmm. talk? He said, I was black. Huh. I was a black soldier. And it was, I think, its first exposure to, you know, we lived in a very diverse community in Pennsylvania, unlike mm-hmm. Asheville. And, it was, and he said he was a black soldier. And coincidentally, that day um, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, he couldn't read that point. You know, I picked it up after right. he left for school. There was an article about black Civil War soldiers. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. It, I didn't say anything after that. You know, I didn't want to feed him any right. anything um, as, you know, as far as prompting him. But within another year, he didn't bring it up after that until uh, the first Desert Storm hmm. War. So that was, what, 91? Yeah. Um, he was seven. He was in second grade, and he came home from school. I picked him up to school, and he was very upset. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, they're putting yellow ribbons all over the school. He said, my memory's coming up, the one I had with Norm. He said, people don't understand what war is. It's a terrible place. So at this Mm. point, I had trained in past life therapy. And I asked Chase if he wanted to explore that a little more. And he said, yes. So I had him relax on my bed. And I said, close your eyes and go back to that lifetime again. And he did. Very same Uh detail. Because uh-huh. they had two two years before, which, you know, anyone who knows young children, that was pretty amazing. That yeah. consistency of detail was there. And he, he went more deeply into the experience than he did the first time. And he said, um, 
he talked about his wife and family, and he talked about volunteering. He said he was a free black man. Huh. And he said it's 1860-something. So, you know, that narrowed it down to the American Civil War. And, right. And again, he described the artillery. And um, he actually, this time when he went back, he remembered dying. The first time he Jeez. just remembered going back behind a cannon Mm-hmm. And he was reluctant to do that. But this time he remembered dying and he talked about how he was behind the cannon. And the next thing he knew, he was looking battlefield and it was smoky. And he said, I'm so glad to be out of that life. It's a relief. Jeez. Um, and I said, well, wh- you know, what did you learn about that? And he said, well, first of all, I have to go back and say goodbye to my wife and family. I never got to say goodbye. And he said, in spirit, you can move around freely. And I, we don't use those words. Yeah, that's spirit. interesting. He said that. And, wow. Yeah, and he, was, he said he, he described moving up very quickly after the death. You know, he was looking down at the battlefield. And, um, you know, he didn't know anything about near-death experiences or what it's like <laughs> to die, but he was describing it. And then he said, um, everybody has to be in a war. It teaches you how other people feel. It's a bad wow. place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is very profound coming from a seven-year-old. Seven <laughs> yeah, so... Um, was Sarah... Did she hear this too? No, she was no, not there at the time. But, uh-huh. you know, I took notes that time. You know, I had a pad with me so I could take mm-hmm. notes to see... Because I knew we were prompting him. I was prompting him to remember again, so I wanted to record what he right. was saying. Um. So, you know, he was fine after that. You know, he seemed to to be have some resolution on that life and his life as a soldier. And he had this other, you know, higher perspective, which yeah, you don't think of seven-year-olds right. having that capacity, but they do. <laughs> you uh, know, were you, they're souls you, in a seven-year-old body. <laughs> yeah. Carol, were you doing regressions with other people or other children by that time? I had just started working with adults. Okay. You know, I had I, in that interim period from moving from Asheville, I started training um, with Norman and hypnotherapy training and with Roger Wolger, who uh-huh. um, was you know, kind of a master past life therapist. So um, I was familiar with the territory. And I, at that point, I started, you know, informal research, well, which I actually had started in Asheville, just talking to other parents, asking uh-huh. if they had these experiences with their children and and I got you know little stories from them. Oh yeah, my daughter was playing one day and she started crying. And the mother said, "Well, what's wrong?" She said, "I miss my children who died in the flood." Jeez. And, and little little like that, you know that you don't forget. So I, I was beginning to think that this is really a common occurrence for little children to okay. remember past lives. So that's when right after Chase and Sarah's early experiences. I'm not going to talk about Sarah's today, but uh-huh. um, she also had a, a, a phobia relating to fire, which was healed, cured mm. after she remembered dying as, in a house fire as a child. And I talk about her story in my book. Yeah, that's really telling So anyway, that was the beginning of my research, but you know, I was, what do I do with this information? I was looking in books, trying to find other people who could comment on this and the healing abil- ability of these past life memories, you know, as, as healing opportunities. <clears throat> and I couldn't find anything, but I did find a lot of references to Dr. Ian Stevenson uh-huh. at the University of Virginia. 
And well, he was the only guy really doing that kind of research then. Exactly. And he started in the 60s uh-huh. investigating children's spontaneous past life memories around the world. He found a lot of cases in Asia, uh-huh. in, especially in India. And he had colleagues around the world who would um, bring cases to his attention in, in India and other places. If a child had a past life memory, since it was something they believed in as Hindus, you know, that uh-huh. we reincarnate, <clears throat> they would publish uh, extraordinary cases of children remembering in newspapers and professors in India would alert Dr. Stevenson and he hmm. would investigate the cases. And he, at, over his 40 plus years as a researcher of this phenomenon, he documented about 2,700 cases wow. and about eight in about 800 cases, they could identify who the past life person, who the child was in his previous life. And he could match up statements the present child made about the other life and confirm that this was related to a specific person Mm -hmm. who died before the child was born. But his focus was on documenting the cases, not not on healing, right? Exactly. Uh But what he found... Um, in analyzing the data was that there are certain patterns to these memories. And one very clear pattern is that very young children can have these memories up until the ages of five to seven, at which time the memories fade. And he also found that um, more than half the children, and I would, I would say at this point, a lot more than half the children remember dying in a previous life. Wow. And, yeah, and a lot of those children had traumatic deaths. Hmm. And, you know, I can't give you a percentage, but he, right. it, it's quite high that a lot of these memories involved traumatic deaths. And, um, and the children would have, pho- present child would have phobias relating to the way they died in the past, uh-huh. just like Chase's battlefield memory. Now, so, um, I had a yeah. question. I remember you telling me that when Chase turned 18 and had to register for the draft or something. Oh, yeah. And the eczema came back. Yes. So um, Chase went to, um, I live in the Philadelphia area. Chase went to Temple University, which is in Philly. So I got to see him on some weekends. And one weekend, I think it was freshman year, he came home. He said, Mom, my eczema's back. And my first reaction was, oh, no. <laughs> you know, after I wrote the book and said his eczema cleared up and, you know, went on Oprah and told 22 million people that his eczema went away. And, and I said, Chase, what's going on? And he, he stood there thinking for a minute and he said, oh, I had to register for the draft. Something about his loans. I was shocked. I didn't know he had to do that. Hmm. And after he said that, it was like, hmm. It went away again, and now he's 37, <laughs> and it has not recurred. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it seems to be healed, and hopefully it won't emerge again. But clearly, even the thought of having to sign Jeez. up for the draft brought the physical, the body memory back in the eczema. Oh. Huh. Yeah, that was another, yeah, that's kind of, if if and when I write another book, I will add that, um, the epilogue to the story. Yeah, really. Because that, I mean, the body memory is as significant as any statements a child makes or any behaviors they have relating to previous lives. So 
Hmm. What I've found from, you know, 30 plus years of research is that these memories can be healing opportunities for the soul. You know, they come up for a reason because the trauma works, the past life trauma works in the same way as present life trauma. If it's not talked about, if it's not expressed and Mm -hmm. processed, it it just keeps um, popping up. It gets triggered. So in Chase's case, even though a lot of the emotional memory went away by age 18, he still had the body memory. But that seems to have resolved at this point. Uh, So um, how did you get involved in the James Leinegger case? I can't remember. Okay. Um, I I remember it was, I think it was 2001. James was about two and a half, three um, his, his mother, Andrea emailed me and, um, she, uh, his mother from Louisiana and she was talking about her, I think he was two and a half when she contacted me about her son, James, who would wake up five times a week screaming. He mm. would have nightmares saying, um, little man can, can't get out of the plane. Um, oh and he talked about the plane crashing and he would kind of push his legs and kick his legs and push his arms out. And he was clearly having nightmares. And, um, interestingly, along with that, he was, had always been obsessed with airplanes. And Andrew said, anytime they went to a store, if there was a toy airplane there, he would have. He would insist that she buy it. I guess he would have a little fits until she bought it. <laughs> so, um, Were they always World War II planes? Um, pretty much. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it, it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of model planes are World War II right. for some reason. But um, so her mother, Andrea's mother, uh, somehow found out about my book and sent it to Andrea. And she started using some of the techniques I describe in children's past lives to talk a child through a traumatic memory. And um, she said that, um, I'm trying to think, oh, she said that after she talked him through, you know, engaged in his reality, uh-huh. you know, you know what happened, um, plane crashed, I couldn't get out. Um, and she would talk him through the, the nightmares and she said, you know, the, the nightmares went down from like five times a week to one every two weeks. Hmm. And he started talking more about his life as a pilot. And, um, they and were his name cautious. was James then also. Well, he, well that came up later. Uh-huh. He, um, he started, they, they asked him, well, you know, where did, where did your plane take off from? And he would say a boat. Hmm. And, do you remember the name of the boat? Natoma. Huh. And they said something like, I think at that point she said, um, they say, well, were you Japanese? He said, no, American. So mm-hmm. Bruce, who did not want to believe any of this, that it could be a past life memory, started doing research. And he found there was an aircraft carrier in the Pacific, an American aircraft carrier called Bruce the was Natoma his dad. Bay. What? Bruce was his dad. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah, his dad. Yeah. Um, and other details, they say, well, what kind of plane did you fly? And he, he, he said a Corsair. 
He would insist Jeez. it was a Corsair. They didn't know what a Corsair was, but it was actually a plane that used to take off of aircraft carriers. And he would hmm. say things like, oh, and it would always have a flat tire when I landed. <laughs> yeah, he's talking in the first person, which a lot of these kids do. They switch to first person when they talk about their previous lives. So anyway, the case kept developing, and um, they they would just wait until he brought it up, and mm-hmm. you know he would he would say things. Well, anyway, during this period, she sent me an email telling me these things, and um, my first reaction is, well, you know, great, you can talk him through the nightmares, and. You know, there's nothing to follow up with. She was doing a good job. And um, I told her just to, you know, let me know if you find out anything more. Uh During that period, um, somebody called me, a producer from ABC Primetime, who is uh, a lovely Indian woman who wanted to do a reincarnation case because, you know, she was a Hindu and she wanted Uh to expose American, American audience to some of these cases. So that was how... She became involved with this case. Her name is Shalini Sharma. And um, we did a taping. And at that point, there was they had no idea who James could have been in a previous life. But another quirky thing that he did was he was obsessed with doing drawings of planes being shot down from the sky. Jeez. And huh. in the drawings, they were always hitting the propeller. And he had a boat, you know, that took off uh-huh. a, a boat. And um, he would always sign his drawings, you know, in his, like, three- or four-year-old. I don't even think he was four then, but he could, you know, sc- sort of scratch out his name. He would write James Three. Hmm. And he would always say James Three, and his parents would say, why do you write James Three? And he said, I'm the third James. Wow. So, huh. so we did this taping um, for ABC in Louisiana, and um, they ended up putting it on the shelf. They didn't use it. So during why not? Because it was it couldn't be substantiated. It couldn't be okay. verified. So mm-hmm. you know it, it was kind of weak at that point. But during that interim period before they became interested again, um, Bruce, the father, found that there was a group of veterans from the Natoma Bay who met Mm. occasionally for a reunion, and he went to one of the reunions under the guise of writing a book about the Natoma Bay. Uh He didn't want to tell them what was really going on. (laughs) Oh, and another thing, uh, there's so many details. They they wrote their own book called Soul Survivor, where all the details are written about. Yeah, so um, one of the things that he did say when they asked him, do you remember anyone else on the boat with you? And he said, yeah, Jack Larson. Wow. So, yeah. That's pretty specific. <laughs> it gets freakier and freakier. So Bruce went to a, a, um, a reunion of the Notoma Bay survivors, and they found out there was someone by the name of Jack Larson mm. who was on the boat. And um, J- Bruce did more digging and found out there was someone who died in – oh, one more detail. There's so many details, but one detail <laughs> that um, – Still, Bruce was trying to disprove it. Uh (laughs) He was trying to find fault with James's memories because of his religious beliefs. He didn't want to believe it. Mm -hmm. Um, So he, uh, one 
one day Bruce had gotten, Bruce was interested in World War II after James started talking about it. And I guess he got a book about uh, sea battles. I think that was what the book was about, but I'm not sure. But uh-huh. he was looking at it one day and um, James looked over his shoulder and there was an aerial shot of Iwo Jima. And he said, Dad, that's where my plane went down. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the goosebumps moment that Bruce yeah. had that in which he became a believer. <laughs> Gee, <laughs> yeah, right. It took it took like dynamite to blast him out of his uh, <laughs> former beliefs. But um, anyway, so he he did find out there was um, a Jack Larson who was on the Natoma Bay, and uh, he did find out there was one person shot down on a mission. Hmm. above near Iwo Jima and his name was James Houston Jr. Oh wow. Yeah, so uh he was right about James 3. He yeah. was the third James. And um Andrea who was a very good researcher uh was found out that James Houston Jr. had a surviving sister who lived in California. And again under the guise of writing a book about the Natoma Bay and uh-huh. the veterans um, she contacted um, Ruth. I think. Oh boy, I'm thinking Ruth Barron. I think that's uh-huh. her name. Her first no, name. Uh, and, the widow. Um, yeah. The, well, she she was the sister the of sister. James Houston, and um, she uh, was very helpful in talking about her brother and his death. And um, Andrea didn't tell her what was going on, but just wanted information. Mm. And um, so when ABC did another program a year after they shelved the first, all of these details had come out. Oh, jeez. And, and, and Bruce and Andrea were able, were able to re- to corroborate a lot of the details that James talked about mm-hmm. being a Corsair, flying a Corsair, the Natoma Bay, Jack Larson, um, the way he died, he, you know, he was shot down in his plane. Um, so they were, they were going to air this program and, uh, you know, it's a good thing they waited because it was a much stronger case once they uh-huh. were able to identify who James had been and corroborate some of these de- details so uh, we were talking on the, Andrea and I were talking on the phone. And I said, "Have have you told Ann Barron what's? Oh, her name is Ann Barron. What's mm-hmm. going on?" And she said, "No." I said, "You better because if she turns on the TV, she's going to have a heart attack." <laughs> so, Good point. So yeah, James, I mean, I said you can't do that. James hadn't met so, her then. What? James hadn't met Ann and the sister. No, no. No, he he didn't know, but he started talking more about his family life. He was yeah. only 21 when he died. He was talking about his sister. He talked about some portraits that had been painted of the two of them hmm. and um, a lot of personal details. Anyway, so Andrea found that uh, Ann Barron had a, a daughter, and she contacted her and talked to her and and told her what was going on, so she waited until the daughter was with Aunt Ann Barron to tell her the news. And mm-hmm. I guess one of her remarks was that she was very open to this because she said the day that her brother died, before she even got the notice or the telegram, whatever, however she was notified, 
um, she had seen an apparition of him in her apartment in, oh, I think in San Francisco. Wow. <clears throat> so there was already this kind of paranormal right. aspect of yeah. his death where she saw him. Well, they met, she, didn't they, eventually? Yeah, well, eventually, after all this was out in the open, um, Bruce took little James. He was like four or five at the time. He was still young to a reunion of the Natoma Bay survivors. Oh and he, he met Jack Larson. Hmm. And um, there's a, a photograph of him with Jack Larson with the biggest smile on his face, you know, oh. two buddies getting back together. And there's this wonderful uh, photograph of him with his past life sister and Baron. God. <laughs> You know, this is stranger than fiction. Oh, it really is. I mean, if you wrote this fiction, it wouldn't get published. (laughs) Right. Right. It would be too contrived. Exactly. Yes. But uh, there was another great uh, aspect to this that I I like to talk about. When when I went to do a a taping before they finally aired that segment, you know, redid it, Uh um, I went to New York and Chris Cuomo interviewed me and he was such a skeptic you know it was like really? it was, yeah it was like a hard driving interview you know totally inappropriate for the material but um he, he was kind of rude so <laughs> <laughs> so he after he interviewed me in new york he went down to louisiana and t- interviewed the liningers oh interesting and this is straight out of the twilight zone so he was still skeptical <laughs> And um, he, during the interview, the doorbell rang, <laughs> and there was a package from Ann Barron containing some effects from oh my James God. Houston's <laughs> locker on the boat. You know his, his his possessions that they sent back to the family. They opened it, and in it was a model of a Corsair. Hmm. And a bust of George Washington. My God, what a synchronicity. James, yeah, I know. James immediately took the bust of George Washington and ran in his room and put it on his desk. Hmm. And um, he was absolutely thrilled with the model of the Corsair, which is, you know, it's kind of the button on the story. And um, Anne Barron said that after they received the package, I guess they communicated with her and she said he all that her brother always kept that bust of George Washington on his desk. Jeez. (laughs) Well, did Chris Cohen become a believer? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you can see his mouth hanging open. (laughs) Yeah. I think his mind was completely blown by that. That was it. You know, I mean, what, you know, what tangible evidence do you need or confirmation? Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an amazing that, case. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I remember some of these details, but not all mm-hmm. of them. It's just. Right. I don't even remember all of them because there were so many. You know, I have to go through the book again to just so many little details that he remembered, such a clear memory. And he actually got to. Um, go to the site where James Houston's plane went down. They, he, uh, mm. Japanese TV crew picked up on the story and, uh, well, paid I, for the liningers to go to Japan and they had a kind of a, a farewell ceremony with James and the boat. A closure. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, I remember my dad was in an assisted living facility 
when this first aired. I said, Dad, you got to watch this. He watched it, and by the end of the show, he was crying. He says, that is the most convincing evidence I've ever seen about reincarnation. And I, I honestly think, Carol, that that's what helped him release his hold on life. He died that's four months amazing. later. Yeah. Well, it's a very compelling story. And, you know, when it's coming from a two-, three-, or four-year-old, it's kind of hard to write it off when there's so much yeah. information. And it seemed like there was just one synchronicity after another. Yeah, because uh. I, I believe that case needed to get out into the public. Well, do you think I that think that was part of his sole script for this life? Yeah, uh. I do. Yeah. The way just, it unfolded, too, because his father was a complete skeptic, which made it even more compelling. He didn't want to believe it. Hmm. But the evidence was overwhelming. Yeah. Hi, this is Trish McGregor at the Writer's Corner. On In our Writer's Corner, our last podcast, we talked about science fiction writers who in their novels have turned into future events. The next incident is about a man who wrote for, and probably still does, Marvel Comics who tuned into an event that was really personal. Okay, Doug Monk experienced one of the most frightening examples of either telepathy, clairvoyance, or precognition that we've ever heard of. In the 1970s, he wrote and worked on Planet of the Apes for Marvel Comics. It was Marvel's longest-lived series and featured original ape stories, as well as adaptations of the various movies. In 1975, it ran 11 issues that included color versions of the adaptation of the first two films, which Monk wrote. Okay, on this particular day, he just completed writing a scene for Planet of the Apes comic books about a black-hooded gorilla named Brutus. In the scene, Brutus invaded the hero's home, grabbed the man's partner by the neck, and held a gun to her head so the hero would do what he demanded. Just as Monk finished writing the scene, he heard his wife calling for him from the other side of the house. He thought her voice sounded a little bit strange, so he hurried across the house and when he entered the living room, he saw a man in a black hood with one arm around his wife's neck and his other hand clutching a gun he held to her head. As he told Jeffrey Cripple, who wrote about this in Mutants and Mystics, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics, and the Paranormal, he said it was exactly what I had written. It was so immediate in relation to the writing and such an exact duplicate of what I had written that it became an instant altered state. Okay, Rob and I initially felt this incident was precognitive, that it was he was sensing the future. But it, it occurred so closely to when Monk was writing the scene that it was probably telepathy or even clairvoyance. So, I mean, first of all, the intruder had to find a way to enter the house. Then he had to get inside and seize Monk's wife. But the question is, was the intruder already inside the house as he began writing the scene? After the experience, Monk found it really difficult to write, understandably. He was afraid that whatever he wrote might happen. As he told Cripple, it really does make you wonder, are you seeing the future, creating an alternate reality? Should you give up writing forever after something like this happens? I don't know. Monk didn't give up on writing, but Cripple noted that the black hooded figure became his obsession for months, then years. And at one point, Rob, go ahead, tried to get in touch with... Yeah, I tried to get in touch with him because I was very curious about what happened exactly. I mean, what happened afterwards? He he just describes the point of where the hood black, man with a black hooded 
<laughs> black hooded man was holding <laughs> his wife's neck and a gun to the head. And then we never hear, uh, did he shoot her? Did he just walk away? Uh, you know, there, was no, the guy arrested? Yeah. I mean, where and where I, is he now? I, I got no response from him, but I put it on, uh, I looked on, on messenger and I'm not a friend. So I guess he might not have seen that and I couldn't find his uh, email, but that, that remains an open question. But, uh, one of the things that Trisha was saying, where was he in was he in the house before or what? The the thing is, where he was was inside Monk's head and, mm-hmm. and remained in Monk's head for quite a while. Yeah. So we always wondered if Monk was actually creating a reality through the act of writing that particular scene. Now, this, this isn't as far-fetched as it sounds. Uh, one of the things quantum physics tells us is that subatomic particles exist in a state of potential until they're observed or thought about. So if, as physicist David Bohm has suggested, consciousness rises from the implicate or enfolded order that exists under our daily lives, then we can impact developing events through the intense focus we experience during the creative process, visualization, meditation, and other ways. Maybe like with any skill, it just takes practice and determination. Yeah, that's a little scary, uh, though, (laughs) uh, the possibility of, you know, the creative endeavor uh, can manifest into reality what you're writing about. But Trisha's had a couple experiences with hurricanes, really, writing about hurricanes, and they have uh, for novels two times, and the uh, hurricanes manifested uh, soon. And not only soon, but in a lot of the same specifics were similar. Yeah, you, but this, but those two experiences of mine are nothing like what Nancy Picard experienced. Now, Nancy. Um, she is a New York Times bestselling author, and two, she's also a friend of mine. And in 2006, uh, she published a book called The Virgin of Small Planes. And the story takes place during a blizzard in Kansas in 1987. And it centers around the discovery of the naked body of a teenage girl and the dark secrets that surround her murder. Okay, in 2011, five years after that novel was published, Scenes from the novel unfolded right in front of her with such specific, with such specificity that she later wrote to us about it, how spooked she felt and how this kind of thing had happened to her several times before. Okay, now this happened in Abilene, Kansas, she says, but before I tell you what happened there, I'll tell you what happens in the book. So she explains that in The Virgin of Small Plains, her heroine uh, goes with three women, friends, to a restaurant for lunch in a small town. As they travel there, they're aware of severe storm warnings. At the restaurant, while they're seated at a round wooden table, one of them looks out the window and notices that the sky has turned seriously ominous. She tells the others, and they all get up and troop to the windows to look. At that moment in the book, a tornado warning siren blares. The women hurry to the restaurant basement with the rest of the cu- customers, except for our heroine who, who hangs back to stare at the boiling clouds. Now here's the precognitive part of this. Nancy and three friends, we're en route to Abilene to have lunch at the Kirby House, a really popular spot there. They're, they were aware that severe storm warnings had been issued. At the restaurant, they're seated at a round wooden table. Nancy looks out the window and notices the sky has turned seriously ominous. In the Midwest, on the open plains, this kind of sky means black, sagging, dirty gray clouds and fractured light that looks like diseased tissue, the kind of scene you look at and immediately know in your bones that it means tornado weather. But in real life, Nancy mentions the sky to her friends, and they all hurry to the windows to look. And at that exact moment, a tornado warning siren blares. And once again, 
Following her story, everyone except for Nancy hastens to the restaurant basement with the rest of the customers. Nancy hangs back to stare at the boiling clouds, and then it hits her, and as she wrote me, she exclaims, wow, this is just like in my book. Um, There were at least probably 20 similarities between the scene she had written and the scene that unfolded, um, which... Including the location. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I'm the restaurant. No, I think it was a different town because her town was fictional. Um, So anyway, I don't know that I would ever have written again. (laughs) These these things were just so specific. However, she also had this experience once before, a couple times before. In 2007, she wrote a novel called Dead Crazy. And this one's funny. That featured, as Nancy explains it, God knows why, a victim who was an old woman who collected porcelain pigs, plastic pigs, pigs made of every craft material. So in the book, the woman's body was found in a bathtub with pigs floating around her. Nancy still wonders why she even thought of that as an attractive idea. So about three years after the book's publication, she opened the local newspaper to read of an old woman who had been murdered, and she collected porcelain pigs. Her body was found in her bathtub. And Nancy says, but at least there were no pigs in the bathtub. (laughs) So those are the writer's corner for today. We'll have more next week. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at www.themysticalunderground.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow the podcast on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog, blog blog.synchrosecrets.com. Visit the book site, phenomena111.com. Send us email, podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Yep, we're all good. We're all good. Okay. Uh, So I'll uh, I'll mute and uh, let y'all do your thing. Okay. Thank you. Let's do our thing, Trish. Okay. (laughs)